Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. I would like to first thank everybody for having a little patience as last week the flood pushed back this podcast uh, so that I could not record. So thank you for sticking with me. It's the first time we've had a one-week hiatus uh, so thank you very much. But joining me today is really another person who has benefited from COVID as in, in the business sense. His name is Jose Garcia. He's the owner of Green Scene. F- absolutely fervent golfer. Great guy. Jose, how are you today, buddy? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Well, I'm sure about one year ago today, you weren't really quite sure where your business was headed uh, with the insanity that was COVID and how we uh, came out the other side of it, but golf and the you know this gigantic boom of having your own practice areas at your home exploded. How did that? Uh, how did that wrap around your brain in that that two week time span where everything was shut down to all of a sudden like picking up into warp speed? I was afraid. I didn't know where it was going to go. Yeah. I didn't know if I was going to have any work next week, but good things happened. Yeah. It was really like that. I remember that first week I had 40 lessons canceled, and the next week I only taught three lessons. I know at the very end of the week after the, the mayor deemed golf essential, but it was a really scary time. But, like, it's so funny that how many different things have been put into the game of golf to try to get it going, to pick up the amount of people playing the game and investing in the game. And it takes a pandemic of all things to turn golf into really the show of, of sports because it's outdoor it's long, and, it, and it fills up that huge void of time that now we, we used to fill with either business work, office meetings or whatever. Now it's, it's very different. And it, it, turned into the, the, it turned into one of the biggest winners in a positive way for the humans that love the game. So it's interesting, but when did you feel like it started to take off on the artificial turf 
side, putting green side, and short game area side of the homes? It's always been a thing, but it's been very slow to take off. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with you that during the pandemic, when no one else, when no one was doing anything other than playing golf, yeah, um, all of a sudden everyone wanted their fireplace, their outdoor kitchen. Mm-hmm. They weren't going on vacations. Yeah, and then next thing you know, we're building short game areas. And uh, people love them. Yeah. What's so funny because you know, I, I met you a little more than a year ago from uh, a gentleman who's uh, a sponsor of mine and a, and a great guy, Trent Conrad, and you, mm-hmm. you did his putting green in his house. And he's like, man, I'm sending, you, I'm sending you my man, Jose. He's a stick. He's struggling with his game. And you came in here, and I had no idea that you did, like, the total package of outdoor area. At first, I just thought you were somebody that installed just outdoor and indoor putting greens but you uh has after looking at your your site and all the things that you do you're more than just a one-stop for golf only you do everything as it pertains to outdoor and well green scenes that's right um anything from uh constructing designing and also maintaining we also have several crews that do maintenance of properties oh wow mm-hmm. oh you got it going on then a little entrepreneur side i like it <laughs> I think I've I've had a bunch of questions sent uh, in interest to what it is that you do as it pertains to golf. We can't. We're definitely going to get into the other things, but as it pertains to golf here at Ensworth, ours is indoor, okay, and it's obviously significantly easier to maintain because it doesn't face the the weather elements to you know whether it be rain, snow, ice, dirt, silt, what have you. Talk to us about the construction of the green and. How is it possible to make it so that it's so close to lifelike as it pertains to playing the game? So from the construction side of it, um, you basically build it like if, if you're building an outdoor patio. You set a base, you compact it, then you put in the putting green surface and the fringe. After that, you put in the sand. Uh-huh. You've got to use high quality sand, and that's really what you know, does the trick. If you want them fast, you add more, less, hmm. spin, and all that. And it just takes some playing around with it. Interesting. Also, it's just, it's, that's the kind of the art of it, I guess, right? Right. Like, you just, you know, it's just kind of, you don't know exactly where you're going to go, but it just kind of goes there. And I guess each, each family or each client wants a different speed of green. Correct. Uh, when we built uh, Trent Conrad's, mm-hmm. I had a really good time building his because, um, I took my wedges and my putter out there, mm-hmm. and the, well, I've built two for them. Yeah. The first one took my wedges and I played around with it, and we added some undulation and fun. Yeah, that was fun to build. That's the that's the cool thing about where we're headed because it's so much better in the last couple of years than it was say ten years ago. Like what isn't? But they've done a really good job of making like. Not from 150 yards, but from like 20 yards. Mm-hmm. It has a very re- realistic check and release to it. Are the, is it easier now to be able to have them both, like the pitch shot acceptable and the putting green still rolling good? Or is it still you kind of have to pick? Or you feel like you want to react more like an approach shot coming in? Or do you want the greens to roll faster? How is that coming along? Um. I still think they need a little bit of work on the chip shots, uh-huh. but on the putting surface, they it, it 
feels just like you're putting on a real green. It really is amazing. And it's just basically most people don't realize is how much fiber per inch is the difference between like the putting green grass and like the fairway grass or the whatever you have around in your chipping surrounds. Right. It's unbelievable when we started to pull back uh, some of our synthetic turf international here to look at, you know, just the wear and tear of a thousand feet walking across it every day, how we're starting to see some different movement on the ball on certain shots that used to break five inches. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it breaks five, sometimes it breaks two. Sometimes it might even go a little left just because of the wear. A lot of people don't realize that there is going to be some movement because it's obviously, it's not static completely. Talk to us about the, the maintenance of of these turf areas and how maybe most people have it a little more complicated than they think it is. Right. It, it is pretty low maintenance. So what you want to make sure you do is you want to keep it clean. Um, any sticks, any leaves on it, just make sure you keep them clean. And every couple of years, bring out a few bags of sand and sweep it in so it doesn't happen what you're talking about. Uh-huh. So it keeps its same roll and, and same check. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. When So you probably started this not with uh, golf greens in mind but more just outdoor spaces for families to enjoy family time or entertainment time tell me a little about the origin of green scene and where how you got into this particular arena well um when green scene was started it started more of uh irrigation and lighting company Mm. but i grew up doing the landscape side and hardscape kind of work and people just started asking about it um then i got into golf Mm -hmm. fell in love with golf and wanted to build one for my own for my own house i did that and just fell in love with it yeah and everybody i meet i'm like you need one in your backyard (laughs) because what it's done for my game and you know what i've seen it it's done for other people's game. Yeah. yeah. That's so fun. It's interesting how a passion can turn into a business. And obviously it's work. I'm not discounting the fact that it's not work, but it's an art that you have a passion about that creates enjoyment, not only for yourself, but the people that you're doing business with. And when you make other people happy, man, life is so good. It's like the, the ability to give other people smiles and give them something that matters to them at a high quality level. I mean, that's the, that's the addiction for me, you know, is like people come in and I'm every single swing, every single person has the, a complete new scratch pad for me to work with. And my job is to kind of figure out the ebbs and flows of what your tendencies are and how your habits are. But when I make, when I help somebody play better golf, man, it's the best feeling in the world because I know what this game means to people, and as as a client of this, you, you know the addiction and how how what it makes you feel like when you play golf well because golf is a hard game. Oh yeah, very hard game. But yeah, you're right. The uh, loving the passion, having the passion for what you do, it's pretty cool for me. Being able to build someone in, something in someone's backyard and seeing their face when they come home. Mm-hmm. Or when they see the process, a lot of the things that I get all the time is, we had no idea how much work goes into this. Mm-hmm. Or um, I've done a few projects where people are out of town and they see none, 
you know, they come back to a whole new home. Uh huh. And th- that's pretty cool. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Especially, I would imagine, like, that's what a home builder kind of feels like. If you can just be left alone right. to just create your art. It's so much fun and so much better probably for the client too because they just they don't have to watch it pace by pace. It's like it goes from a the leaves in the backyard to like this awesome outdoor area, whether it be for golf or not golf. Right. But it's just so spectacular looking. I bet that is a pretty cool experience. It is. Awesome. Well, you're from Mexico and, and I've always find it fascinating. In the process to come here and how long have you been in America? We moved here in 94, okay. 95. 1994, 95. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about your, the road to coming here and how you ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, and the entrepreneurial side of you. Where did, where did that originate from? Well, um, let's see. My dad moved here about six months before we did. And he was in a mariachi-style kind of band back uh-huh. home, and they would travel to... Atlanta, L.A., just heavy Mexican populated mm-hmm. uh, areas. And they started um, coming here probably early 90s. And we had an uncle that lived in Nashville. He was in Atlanta like in 93, 94. And uh, came, uh, drove and visited my uncle in uh, Franklin. And then... Uh, went back to Mexico. On their way back to Mexico, they would drive a tour bus. On their way back to Mexico, back to our town, across the border, the uh, police officers stopped them. Well, it wasn't really police officers. Mm-hmm. They took everything they had, like oh. all their work equipment, uh, their uniforms, everything. And come to find out, it was cartel. Oh, wow. So... Um, like a month later, it happened again. And uh, my dad was on a work visa, so um, he's, he was like, I can't do this anymore. So he came here, um, started working in Franklin, literally left everything he had. Then six months later, we come. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we left our house, uh, everything. Yeah. And uh, just started working minimum wage um i mean he was in a mariachi style kind of band so there wasn't really sure anything he could do in franklin uh-huh. and um it that's kind of where it began and i started elementary school in franklin uh went to school in franklin and uh i started literally working outside when i was 12 years old wow one of my uncles had a sod business, and he's kind of the one that kind of pushed me uh, to kind of get in that uh, world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started Green Scene in uh, about ten years ago, and uh, but we kind of my family got in, into the landscape world. I'd say like in '95. Mm-hmm. If you could, could you? What's the, what's that like at age twelve? Completely uprooting your life and not really knowing the the outcome. What, what was that like? Well, I was about six. Oh, six you were or six. Seven. Okay. Yeah. And uh, for me, I didn't really think about it much then. I was with my parents. Sure. You know? um, but going to school and not knowing the language, yeah. that was probably the hard part. 
it was easy to learn it just because I was so young. Mm-hmm. But thinking back on it now, now that I have kids and thinking about what my parents went through yeah. to get us here and leaving everything behind, you know, that that's kind of where. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I mean, because I love, first of all, I love risk taking because at the end of the day, an average life is a pretty boring, when I think of average, it's just kind of doing something monotonously the same over and over again without taking a jump to stretch yourself. Now, keep in mind, leaving your country and leaving everything behind is a little bit more than a stretch, but being so young probably benefited you from really struggling. Maybe you would have if maybe you were 15 or 16, leaving a bigger group of friends at those formative years. But it's, it's very interesting because in some ways the struggles of, of people wanting to come in, it's such a popular conversation point of the people coming from Mexico into the country and doing it legally versus not. What is it, what is it like in, in Mexico from where you're from the, the desire to get out is it is it strictly just due to the cartels? Is that the major issue? So I'm from a very small town close to Guadalajara, mm-hmm. and uh, we never thought all that would get you know there just because it's such a small town. But yeah, it's everywhere now. Wow. And yeah, now that's probably the main reason. Even people that have successful businesses there uh-huh. are moving. Um, they didn't need to move, but now they're you know, in danger. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there's just a lot of people wanting to move just because people don't feel safe. Wow. That's gotta be so scary. It's like, it's, a, it's, a, I think that's one of the things that I wish the world, certainly in the United States could see so that we could see things with a clear lens because it's almost like you can watch two different news networks and one makes it such a, uh, we need to help these people scenario. And we, we also have this other side that's we need to keep those people out until they do it legally. And the process can take so long that that, that might be too scary of a proposition for people living in a very terrible uh, situation. And the most people don't, and I certainly, I mean, you hear about the cartels, but you don't know, like, what is it like in the day-to-day life when, like, every second you're looking over your back? That's got to be pretty frustrating and exhausting right and um there's one thing i told uh, one of my friends the other day he couldn't understand why people wanted to come to the united states right and he has five kids and the example i I used was what if you couldn't feed your family what if you couldn't find work to feed your family what would you do you would do anything yeah you know to help your family and that's what a lot of people have to do. Yeah. It's so sad. It's so sad because we can't, like the truth seems to be hidden within the lies to, you know, for one way or the other. But when we're really just looking at it, we're looking at people that are just trying to survive. Right. Not, not do anything negative. What, a, what an interesting and difficult scenario to, uh, to go through. What's, when, it, when you think about like where you see your business going, in the future and how maybe the driver of your passion is to be able to provide the best that you can for your family and your kids, but also leave something for them so they can keep, you know, keep it going mm-hmm. and be productive. 
where do you see Green Scene and where you're trying to take your company and, and everything in the next you know, five, ten years? Uh, family, for sure, is a big part of it because um, I'm the oldest in my family. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's really important to um, not only provide for my kids, but also help my parents mm-hmm. Um, since they did so much for me just to get me here. Sure. I couldn't even imagine growing up in Mexico and being there. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably my main goal is uh, building something so I can help my parents, but also my, my family. Interesting. Yep. I love that. Is there anything in the turf world, the outdoor turf world, that you see coming that's exciting it's got you fired up about the possibilities of you know uh, one particular part of your business is about ready to see an explosion or uh, technology makes it even better than it is today well um in the turf world not so much but in the hardscape world Mm -hmm. um there has been some pretty cool stuff that we have been doing like we've been doing uh light up cups um Top golf, you know, yeah. everybody lo- loves top golf. We do color changing lights. Oh, yeah. And uh, like in my backyard, we play games to where, you know, like go to the blue flag at night. That's and so uh, that makes it pretty fun. Oh, it's all the little, it's all the little things that, you know, because when at night, that's one of my favorite times is to like, if I had a short game area at home, it'd be nice, like, you know, after dinner, go out and have a little chipping or putting contest with the with the boys. I can't imagine how much fun that would be. So that'd be so cool. Oh yeah, I'll send you a picture of uh, of my backyard so you can put it on Instagram. But oh, uh, please do. I have a uh, outdoor kitchen, a water feature, a fire pit, and a short game area. And like you said, in the evenings we'll grill out. Mm-hmm. You know, sit and have dinner, and me and my wife will you know sit next to the fire pit and talk mm-hmm. and i love seeing the kids oh yeah chipping putting oh yeah, yeah. so you got your kids got the bug yet they start to start when i got there with dad and run around oh I yeah i see some pretty fun pictures on instagram oh yeah i love it they, they start uh at the little course today oh fantastic yeah for those of you out there that don't know the golf house of tennessee oh the you know the tennessee golf you know, the home of Tennessee golf, where the Tennessee PGA, the golf foundation and, you know, the, the little course, they've, they're worldwide known for the quality of our, of our junior camps. And they'll, that's, they do such a great job of fostering the love of the game. And, you know, with me having two boys that are 15 and 13, almost 16 and 13, you know, and knowing what you got coming your way when it comes to having your kids enjoy the game with you, it's, um, it's maybe the greatest gift that golf gives me it's not the being the chance to play augusta national or cypress point or all the amazing golf courses that i played it's the fact that i get a chance to to do something that my kids love to do with me that takes a long time to do five hours you know to and from and play 18 holes it's the greatest thing in the world and when when you got you know your son or your daughter just cannot wait to go play with you it's the it's really the greatest the greatest feeling possibly the most heart warming crushing moment that i've ever had was i was playing a hillwood and it was late at night i think my son was i don't know maybe nine eight pushing his he's got his little push cart and his head just barely above his <laughs> above his hands pushing the cart up the ninth hole 
And we had spent the whole day talking about, you know, college football, NFL football, LeBron James, and this sports the whole way around. And we're walking up the ninth fairway, and he's like, Dad, you know what my favorite thing in the world is? So I'm expecting, like, either Titans game, going to see the Predators or, you know, something. He goes, I said, what's that, buddy? He goes, playing golf with you. Oh, man, that's so cool. That was like, that was, I was a mush pile. Uh-huh. I, was, <laughs> I think I five-putted because I couldn't see the hole. But, I mean, oh, you man, have those so cool. days coming, and it's just the best. Because like, right now you play a lot of golf, and you're playing with buddies, and you're competing, and you're at the club and stuff like that. But, man, when you get your kids involved in it, and it's like you put in an eight-hour workday, and it's 530, it's 75 degrees, and dead, and they're actually waiting on the first tee for you. Dressed just like you, can't wait to play. It is. There's nothing like it, man. I oh, look forward so to those cool. moments for you. My daughter's already talking about because um, I'm going to Pebble Beach with some buddies in July, and uh, she's been searching for golf trips that our family can do together. Oh, nice! And uh, I will do that in a heartbeat. It's oh, gonna be so good because there are some really nice I've been very fortunate to have played some of the nicest places in Mexico so you get a chance to go back and get some culture and and go back home man like Cabo San Lucas has some great golf uh Puerto Vallarta and Nueva Vallarta all have great golf courses and on the all other side Cancun Cancun yeah uh, oh man there's just so much cool things you can probably loop together Mayacoba. Mayacoba. you know so that's a, that's a got a that's a really nice resort over oh, there yeah. too so it's it's cool that they're already thinking about stuff like that because all of those resorts, they have the total package. It's not just golf. They got everything, but just to know that you're going to be able to be able to do that a couple of times a vacation. Oh yeah. It's the best. Can't wait. I took my son out uh, with another buddy and his son uh, last week to Uh play nine holes. And of course, they're just well teeing it up. They just hit the ball and then run in the bunkers. And <laughs> that's still fun. It was stressful for a couple holes, just yeah. making sure you don't hold anyone back. But um, that's the only thing. That yeah. is the only stressor <laughs> is to make sure that you're not holding up the play while everybody's having so much fun. But after a hole or two, they kind of get the the feel of it. And, yeah, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. I saw the pictures. <laughs> the, the that kind of energy, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> they had a good time. Well, talk to us about the the addiction of golf and how it gripped you because, you know, from the time that I started working with you to where you are right now in your game, you've come a long, long way, but you were already a pretty talented player when you came to see me. Where did the where was that introduction point and where did you get bit? So, funny story, uh before I started playing golf, I had no hobbies, literally. I was working 100 hours a week, literally. Wow. Uh, Gained about 50 pounds. Uh, Stopped working out, just work, 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 building the business. Yeah. And my wife, she is awesome. She bought me a set of clubs. So growing up, you know, with my parents from Mexico, didn't know anything about golf. Golf wasn't really at least in the part of Mexico I'm from, no one really knows about golf. Yeah. It, everything's soccer. So I didn't really know much about golf. So one of my buddies invites me to go play golf. I thought we were playing golf, uh-huh. but really we went to the driving range uh, at the little course next to Legends. And I was using his driver to hit some, or try to hit some balls. And uh, on my 
way home, I called my wife. I was like, oh, I had a great time. I played golf. Like, but I kind of remember seeing it a little different on ESPN. I remember seeing people have different clubs and there was flags and people would putt. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this was kind of different. I didn't know anything about golf. I didn't know we just went to the range. Sure. I thought we were playing golf the whole time. Oh, wow. And uh, she's like, well, that's good that you liked it. Well, for Christmas, she bought me uh, a 10-pack lessons uh-huh. and uh got me a set of clubs a target oh, yeah. box so when i went to the first lesson um guy helped me open them and told me how to hold the club uh-huh. and just knew nothing about it right page one <laughs> <laughs> and um that's kind of how it started started and um it really taught me how to be a lot more efficient with work too what I realized was I needed a hobby. Yep. Then um, how was I going to find time to have a hobby if I wasn't, if I was working 100 hours a week, right? Sure. Well, I kind of fell in love with the game and realized I was being very inefficient with work. Huh. And somehow I find now a lot of time to play golf and more work gets done. Yeah. Passion and purpose. Usually it takes a passion for you to find some purpose. So you, you're, at first, you're, you almost, your work was your purpose. And you were, just, you were trying to build your business so that you could find a passion. And it kind of worked in reverse on you. Right. You know, so your passion brought you a better process and more efficiency. And I'm reading a book right now by Stephen Kotler called The Art of Impossible, How to Achieve Things Greater Than You Could Have Ever Imagined or Even the Impossible. And it starts, passion usually stokes the purpose. And that was the wake up. And it's a beautiful thing because they almost always go together. When you start to be more efficient at something, you had a passion. And that's the thing. What was, the, was it a shot or was it a round of golf or was it a golf course itself? that uh, flipped you into the, the golfer that you are today? I think it was just um, the work it takes to get good. Like, <laughs> yes, it does. I tend to obsess over I don't like sucking at things. <laughs> and same way I was with work, I had this picture of my business. Uh-huh. That's what I wanted it to be, right? Yep. And same thing happened with golf. Man, I'm telling you right now, nobody has ever hit a more solid 47-foot-high 7-iron, 175, than you, buddy. You came in here. You hit the most (laughs) incredible stinger flight iron shots. And I was like, man, but you could hit it so much longer if you get that trajectory up. And we've slowly got your trajectory. It's almost like you grew up in Scotland and you couldn't hit a ball (laughs) over 50 feet in the air because as soon as we got that ball up into the 85, 95 We've even getting close to getting into 100 feet in the air with your full swings. Mm-hmm. You're hitting the ball so much longer than you were, but the golf swing doesn't look that much different. It's, it's so just crazy. subtle little tweaks here, and especially how your hips move and how it help pull the club up to the finish. But I'm interested because I love to I love to get reviews of my work, not because I'm asking for a compliment, but like 
when you came to see me, you didn't know me before that. You came on a recommendation, right. and then it's a it's a hard game and a hard process. What has your experience been like learning the game with all the technology and all the information? And how do you feel like it's helped you get to where you where your game is right now, which is really good? Um, so I, I tell people this all the time. It's like um, a lesson with Virgil is like t- taking two 10-packs. Well, you're very kind. At, you know, where I was taking lessons before. The quality of the lesson, um, for sure. Um, well, we like to have fun. I think that's the one of the cool things. Is like I get your the picture that you have, and then I try to create visuals and things that I know that you know about that have nothing to do with golf mm-hmm. to encourage you to to remember that it's kind of like the the Matrix, the movie. Mm-hmm. You know how to do this. You just don't know how to access it. You don't mm-hmm. know how to make it kind of come out of your body because especially you as we've learned i've learned thousands of times on my own but i do it every day too what you think you look like and mm-hmm. what you really look like are sometimes so startling <laughs> like because you'd be like right now we're trying to get it a little deeper early in the backswing a little more across the line at the top because much like you and i we need because we're wide-chested short-armed we need a little help shallowing the shaft so if we get it across the line a little bit the first move with a club across the line, the right arm wants to have to reattach, and that right arm reattachment puts the golf club in a shallow position. But you would be standing over there, like, get it as far across the line as you could, and it would still be laid off. Yeah. And that discouragement of knowing that your very best <laughs> effort with a very clear picture wasn't good enough, it's a, humbling, it's a humbling experience for people that don't know. Well, to me, it was the, um, the flip at the bottom. Oh, yeah. It's like, I had no idea I was doing that. And, uh, I mean, how would we see it without the, uh, with, yeah. the cameras and trackmen and all that? Yeah. Because I was sitting there, like, there were shots that you'd hit, especially in the first couple of lessons, that sound like they came out of a gun. They were smashed. But the path would be 7.4 to the right, I mean, to the left, and the face would be closed five degrees, and it would come out, like, so low, and it, I'm like... That went to the left seven degrees because it didn't look over the top at all. Mm-hmm. And it was just, and then we started to see, you know, Trackman. For those of you out there who wonder what Trackman, Trackman will measure the center of gravity of the head. So if the right hand scoops or flicks the golf club, that throws the center of gravity up and to the left. So we'd get all these very confusing numbers where you'd be swinging left seven with a club face five degrees closed, but you'd be still kind of scooping up on the ball, Mm -hmm. but it was still flying low. It was a very, that was a unique recipe Mm -hmm. that I had, that we had to unravel. And the, and the scoop was the last thing where we finally got rid of it. That little hub point that we worked on last time made a huge impact for you. It's pretty. It's a pretty fun process to go through. And I say, you give me nice clay, I'll make a really nice face, and you're really good clay. But man, it has been a, real, a lot of fun to watch. What looks like a guy who grew up playing wind golf to start getting <laughs> playing up into the air. It's been fun. Oh, the contact I'm making now versus you know a couple months ago. Yeah. You know, I thought I was making good contact then. Yeah. It's, each step is a, its own step. You know, you get there, and it'll it'll evolve now because pretty soon your swing is going to outperform your short game. Mm-hmm. So then the focus will become your short game to, to amp up your 
how many, how few shots you donate away. Because mm-hmm. now you're going to run into this new place where you drive it way better than, way longer than ever because mm-hmm. we got the ball flight up. I mean, mm-hmm. way longer. Now you have nine irons instead of six irons. So now you're hitting, going from hitting seven greens to like 11 or 12 greens, maybe 13 on a good day. Now you got more birdie opportunities, but you still shoot the same score. Mm-hmm. So you're not hitting it close enough to make the birdies or you didn't think that your lag putting was bad because you only had one or two lag putts a day. Mm-hmm. Now you got 10. Mm-hmm. And you're like, man, I'm not very good from 35 feet downhill. Right. Or, man, I'm, I, I, I get nothing drives most good golfers nuts is they work so hard to get their golf swing to hit it far enough to hit those par fives and two. And you hit driver four iron to the fringe mm-hmm. and make a par. Mm-hmm. I've only done that just about 22,000 times. So I lead, the, I lead the league in three putt pars on par fives and drivable par fours. But it's definitely, it goes in cycles because as soon as then your short game matches the technique or the, the quality of your long game, you start to want to evolve your long game. And then as soon as your long game evolves again, the short game has to catch up. Right. Very rarely, although the ones that are rare are also the Jordan Spieths, the Brant Snedekers, the Brian Gays, the super short gamers. Mm-hmm. Very rarely is it the short game goes first. Mm-hmm. It's always they want to drive it longer and hit it purer because right. that's what most people think of when it comes to what it means to be a golfer right. is the pure strike of the ball. Right. When It takes a rare breed of person to know that it's the far right number on the scorecard. That's the real reason for mm-hmm. the game of golf. But that's most people want to hit the ball first, and then as soon as they start to hit it, they feel like, oh, I'll just put the rest of the pieces together, and they do. But it's just, it's funny. The greatest players in the world, it starts with their short game and goes backward. But it's just so boring that way. <laughs> that's what makes it so addicting, though. It's yeah, you're never gonna feel like you've got it figured out. Yeah, like never, never. Not I call even it job security. I call it job security. <laughs> <laughs> I call it job security. <laughs> Well, we've, we've talked a lot about the, where your business is, how you got to where you are, the road to America, and, and this. It seems like a straight shot to glory. We haven't had any negatives, but I'd be, I'd be foolish to think that there wasn't a time that you've had to persevere through, that you weren't quite sure you were going to make it. But when you did come through, it gave you the confidence to know that you could tackle just about anything that could come your way. What's that one moment in your life that you you stared down a really challenging moment and came out the other side? I'd say starting the business, yeah, for sure. The first couple of years were tough. Um, there was, I mean, I think back at it now, and it even gives me goosebumps. But uh, just looking back at it and thinking the times we, you know, we barely made it. Yeah. Um, paying mortgage was tough. Yeah. Um, going out to eat, we had, you know, had to think about that. Had to think about a lot of things. Yeah. It, it was tough. That those beginning years of starting a business, sometimes we get so far into the weeds because we're trying so hard to make it that sometimes we don't pull back enough to, to take a take a look because you're just you're just grinding right. every day. Those days are really, those are really tough days. But at the end of the day, I'm always trying to encourage people to be an entrepreneur and own, own your own time because there, there's nothing we get back like time. Right. You know? So when you took the risk to go out on your own to start your own business, one, probably out of necessity, but 
to the, the pure entrepreneurship of what America is. And I don't feel like many people, I, think, I don't know if it's fear of failing or the fear of not knowing where to start contributes to a lot of people not doing it. But I would imagine that day where you said, I think I'm going to do this. Those first couple of years, every day was the first day of, of, your, of that day of business for sure. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, getting started was not easy. Um, and I kind of got pushed into it in a way. Really? I've always had kind of an entrepreneur kind of mind ever since I was little. But um, I used to work for a guy in town. And, uh, you know, it was very valuable. You know, I see it now for him to have um, someone that could speak Spanish and English yeah. because most of the guys that, you know, work in my field that do labor or, you know, sp speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, within six months I was a manager and I was literally running his business after a year. And uh, he was trying to get me to sign a no compete. And I almost did it. And uh -huh. the same uncle that um, that uh, I started working with, you know, uh, in sod business, he's like, don't do it. I'm like, I need the job. My wife just got pregnant. Mm -hmm. You know, I need the job. He's like, you need to go out on your own. He's like, well, I like the sign to that. And he's the one that kind of pushed me to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, when I told the guy I wouldn't sign the no compete, he didn't like it. Oh, I bet. And uh, he's like, well, either you sign it or you can't work for me. He was just twisting my arm. Sure. He, he didn't think I would leave. Yeah. And... Uh, that's kind of where it started. Wow. Nothing like a good. So some people are coached through it and some people are kicked off the, kicked off the diving board into the deep end. You got kicked off into the, off the diving board <laughs> in the deep end um, and had to learn to swim quick. Yeah. What was it like? What, where did you, what was your strategies to start up? Where did you go and what were the strengths of your ideas that got things going? I think for me, I've always been into technology, mm. uh, I've always been interested into it and uh, the, and creating systems. I think that has been a big one in technology software. Uh -huh. um, you don't really put those things together with the landscape world, but it's, I have family members that have similar businesses and they've had it for a lot longer than I have. And, you know, they've never really grown and we talk all the time and, I try to help them implement technology yeah. into the business and they're just not interested. But I think for me, creating systems for uh, me, for my employees mm -hmm. um, and the technology, um, just being able to be at a million different places at one time. Yeah. Well, that's what it takes mm -hmm. because you can't do it all. Right. You know, so the systems are... Systems and procedures are so essential to what it is that you're doing because you're kind of managing from the 10,000-foot view, overseeing a bunch of different projects, I'm sure. So that's interesting. Yeah, the guy I used to work for, um, same kind of thing, didn't really like technology. And he used to take, you know, three, four hours a day to kind of lay out all this paperwork and create routes for everyone when I can do it with the press of a button. Yeah. It takes half a second. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. Like to me, I'm, I would say I'm not overwhelmingly technologically astute for maybe an Excel spreadsheet or some type of documentation. Mm-hmm. But, buddy, you put me on a track, man. I can make that thing sing because you have to embrace where the game, where your life is going. And if you can stay ahead and keep your technology and your vision with the technology razor sharp, people that are trying to catch you are always then going to be trying to catch you. Right. You know, and I think that that's what you're you're trying to pass on to your to your friends and cohorts is that if you don't, if you stay antiquated to the old, your customers are going to die right. off because there's going to be certain people that are going to want something that you're then not capable of understanding or doing and it ends up having to go to you anyway right that's a that's a hard lesson for people who are they're just simply afraid to fail while learning a technology because failure to some people equals shame right and that's a really hard it's a really hard thing for people to move past because it's an illusion right it just feels like something it feels bad to not understand what buttons to hit to make something happen on a, on a computer. But it's, if you, if you really thought about it, like the amount of struggle that your dad had to get here Mm -hmm. is significantly harder than to learn how to do something on a computer. No doubt. But yet we, the fear of failure without enough hunger is the real issue. The, I was listening to David Faraday on uh, one of his interviews. I think it was with Kepka, but if it wasn't with Kepka, it was with Justin Rose. And he was talking about it's the the difference between Tiger Woods and Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson is the hunger, how bad they want it. And the differences of how things are today, like listening to Rory McIlroy talk about the fact that he didn't fully understand Tiger Woods's life until he moved to Jupiter and lived really close to Tiger. And they went and played, I think they played the Bears Club together. And Roy's like, hey, hey, T.W., why don't, why don't you get your girl? I'll get mine. We'll go out. We'll have, all, we'll go out, have dinner tonight. He goes, Roy, I can't do that, man. He goes, oh, come on, man. On me. We'll just go out. He goes, no, no I, you don't understand. I can't go out to eat. I mean, what do you mean you can't? And it's hard to understand, but like, I can't go out to eat. I just get swarmed. Hmm. And he goes, if, so Rory says, if I have to choose between being the greatest golfer that ever lived and never be able to go out with my friends, or I could win five or six majors <laughs> and, and have a great life playing golf. And still have my anonymity, still be able to go to the movies, still go out to the restaurant, and nobody like really bother me. I don't want to be Tiger Woods. But the difference was Tiger's insatiable desire to be the greatest that's ever lived was more important than going out. Right. But I think at some point he didn't realize what he didn't realize. Is like, man, it's a it's probably in some ways, well, you can see he has struggles with many things. The loneliness and how few people he feels like he can trust, how little places he can go, it's a fascinating thing. But hunger and desperation or how desperate you are to be something is really one of the key drivers of success. Oh, yeah. For sure. 
And then you're, so like, to me, that's probably what I, that's what I see out of you is like, you, you have it. But one of the first scary places, if you don't have a, if you don't have the perseverance button put in you is when you give it everything you got and it doesn't work out, Mm -hmm. some people, it really, really crushes and some people it steals their resolve. It's a really bizarre, fine line. Mm -hmm. And that to me is one of the, the the most exciting things for me is like you you did something you weren't quite sure you felt you felt like you got pushed into it a little bit mm-hmm. and you just did the best that you could and good things came mm-hmm. so when good things come it kind of it reinstills it you want to try it again mm-hmm. and get better at it mm-hmm. and get better at it and next thing you know you've become a master of your craft and now yourself yourself oh, awareness and your self image of who you are while doing your craft, you know, like, you know, that you can keep going cause you have to, mm-hmm. you know, you can keep what you're doing. you stay in the present and you know, your past. Mm-hmm. So now that everywhere you learn, you have roadmaps. You've already seen what you've done. Mm-hmm. You're paying attention to what you're doing right now, but you know where the future's going mm-hmm. too. And that's the wonderful, it's a wonderful thing about how I see your, your brain tick on what you're like the whole picture and not only not only that but how important it is to be able to pass it on to your kids mm-hmm. and your family that's the big vision mm-hmm. obviously but they're so young you just got you still got a long way to go before you have that you still got a lot of golf to play between now and then. <laughs> but that's uh that's the that's obviously the the beauty of it all right. is to build something so that the, it's solid so they don't have to struggle like you did, they'll have to struggle. Everybody mm-hmm. has to struggle, but you will have created a roadmap and a process and a formula mm-hmm. to overcome these moments while constantly trying to progress. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, the second half of the show is about the things you like to do to recharge your batteries because you've fully admitted that you are not afraid to work 100 hours a week. Mm-hmm. When you start to think back to the things that most people do to enjoy, they've been kind of taken away right now due to COVID because it's most of the time, it's the things that bring a lot of people together of like-mindedness, whether it be family or friends. And whether that's going to see a football, your favorite football team, baseball team, basketball team, golf, et cetera, concerts, movies, and then the big family gatherings that really fill your cup up. They've been kind of taken away, but at the end of the day, they're still out there. We just have to work a little harder and more diligently to make them happen. What are your favorite things to do to fill your cup up? Golf, number one. Yeah. Um, and uh, we also like to uh, just hang out. Yeah. Uh, my parents come over a lot, um, work out. You big workout guy? Mm-hmm. Do you have any particular st- – which one? Is it, is it just your own? Do you do like Iron Tribe or – Orange mm-hmm. theater, just do your own stuff? Own stuff, yeah. Good, good for you. When the whole pandemic thing happened, got lucky and found a bunch of good equipment and built a home gym. Oh, nice. So now the trainer comes to my house. Excellent. Saves me, gosh, an hour a day. Oh, at least. Yeah. Because of the to and fro. Right. Yeah, just the to and fro. Wow. What's the uh, What's the best golf course you've ever played? I'd say... Uh, Mayakoba has been one of my favorites. Really? Yeah. I've not been there, but it looks so good on TV. Yeah. That is so good. And, and of course, you got Pebble Beach coming up. Pebble Beach Talk to us up. about Pebble Beach. How's that going to work out for you? Can't even excited about that. Gosh, we have so much golf planned. We're doing Pebble, Spyglass, Spanish Bay. We're doing Pebble twice. 
then on the last day we'll end up in uh pasatiempo uh-huh. and we'll finish up watching a uh giants game oh yes winner that's yeah. a super trip you know pasatiempo i haven't played but I'm a, I'm a, I've studied Alistair McKenzie upside down and sideways. It's not a very long golf course, but it is. I would say Cypress Point's the greatest golf course in the world. He also did that. He also did Augusta National, which is the greatest test of golf anywhere in the world. It's amazing. His, how he sees golf is brilliant. It's a, it's a much shorter, quirky golf course than Cypress Point, but it is, oh, I think it's like, the, if it's not, I think it's in the top 10 public golf courses in the world that were built before 1950. I think I saw that somewhere, yeah. It's, oh, I've seen so many pictures. The greens are epic. Yeah. That's what, and to me, I would imagine because you, you tend to do, you tend to do that in your world. I'm interested to see what you, because that's going to be, that's the creme de la creme of green complexes, mm-hmm. of what you can then use that to visualize for yourself and what it is that you do. Because okay. I think that'll be something that it'll take a snapshot in your brain. It's very different mm-hmm. than probably anything you've seen. Oh, yeah. And to see how it can be done. Obviously, I would imagine that the artificial side of it would have to be softened slightly. Um, and I don't even know why it would just seem that way. But it just seems like you'd have to soften the slope slightly for an artificial green versus what you'd see in real life. But, um, oh, man, it'll be it'll be the most tantalizing 6,400 yards you'll ever play because you'll, you'll feel like you can score. And if you miss the little 10 by 10 spot that that ball needs to land, good luck making par. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like I need to work on the putting. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to, it's, it's one of the, like Alistair McKenzie's deal is, you know, it's not that difficult off the tee. It's kind of Jack Nicholas's way too. Mm -hmm. You got to hit, obviously you got to hit it, but there's room. They give you room off the tee, but they force you to be precise around the green. And the, the easier the shot into the green, as in the yardage-wise, like mm-hmm. a 95-yard shot, the more brutally difficult the area is to land the ball mm-hmm. into. And obviously, when it's coming in with a four-iron, you got a different level of forgiveness. He's not trying to – but it's the fairest – hardest test of golf because you drive it down there you got 93 yards and you're like my goodness i gotta hit a shot from 93 yards <laughs> and, and he's like i almost feel like i'd rather be playing that 460 yard hole hitting five iron in because i got something to, that can hold oh man you're gonna love it and i just can't wait to see what like those trips do to your creativity in your mind for what you do for a living oh, part, yeah. of, part of what it is because that's there's going to be some cool how the bunkers are done he's probably you know, there's a new era of golf course architects led by Tom Doak, David McClay Kidd, Cor Crenshaw, Fazio, that, that whole group of players that are, and Gil Hans. They're kind of like, they've dug deep into the old triumvirate of Tillinghast, McKenzie, and Ross, and they're amplifying up, and McKenzie's just the best, but like learning how to, or like seeing how they make flash bunkers or raise things up to make something else look different from a little chipping area, a pitching mm-hmm. area. It's only going to stand to make you better and elevate your game so that nobody else, nobody else thinks like you think, and that'll be that'll be beautiful. Oh yeah, I, I love uh, Golf Club of Tennessee as well. Oh yeah, the that's one that uh, I've gone to play a few times and kind of used it yeah. um, for some inspiration, uh, being able to kind of use the water the water features with it, uh-huh. 
that one was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's a pretty, it's uh, it's amazing because you know the golf club of Tennessee is mainly founded by Augusta National members. Mm. So and the 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 big the big three of that kind of run that club, they go around to other majestic places to see what they can add to the golf club of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So now we have these beautiful cabins out there that are so remarkable, and the the golf course. They're constantly studying how to keep that bent grass healthier and better in the in the heat. Mm-hmm. Last year, I've never seen the greens more perfect in the heat of summer as that they were last year. It was so amazing. So Jeff Huber's doing an unbelievable job of understanding. But the, they try to stay on top of the game so that the Golf Club of Tennessee is the showcase of the state. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's a tug of war between the honors down in Chattanooga, the Golf Club of Tennessee, and Spring Creek Ranch out in Memphis. Those are the the showcase places, the ones that are just they'll have the reputation of wow, and I'm they do a great job. They've elevated that club to a place that I wasn't. Sh- I was I'm so excited for them, but I just was like, I guess it was maybe 2010. They did a massive renovation, and it was like this is the greatest renovation of a club that I've seen. Mm-hmm. They did a great job there. I've never played honors, but I've heard great things about it. Yeah, I mean the honors. In my opinion, they they I thought that they needed to maybe reshape the greens a little bit because they were super severe uh, for bent. They were perfect for bent. But the hard Bermuda grass, uh, they didn't receive the iron shots like bent did. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of times I played out there, the honors, if you go back and listen to some of my archived radio shows when I did Radio 104.5, I would say the greatest inland golf course I've ever played, fairest, hardest test of golf was the honors. Hmm. It's so spectacular inland. No ocean or anything, no Mm -hmm. views. It's the golf course itself. But when they went to Bermuda grass, it's still the same layout. Mm -hmm. But I'm just not that good anymore. Hmm. I can't. My brain, I'll I'll put it like this. My brain doesn't know how to cope with, like, fifth hole is like 518-yard par four. Mm -hmm. Hit one dot there, and I got 205 into the hole, and the pin's on this back right, and I hit five iron. Absolutely perfect. And... When I get up there, I think it's in the hole because mm-hmm. there's no ball on the green, only to find out that it's actually about 18 yards off the back of the green into the high heather. Mm-hmm. My brain wants to explode when something like that happens mm-hmm. because I don't know what else to do. My right. ball mark was literally five feet from the hole, and now my ball's off the green. But if I can't hit it on that section of the green, I have to leave it on a, on the section that's tiered three feet lower, mm-hmm. have a 55-footer up the hill, then it's going to go down the hill and break hard to the left. I'm like, I'm not good enough for that. I was like, it was so such a disappointing double. So I went there, and I hold out for for birdie on 18 from the bunker to shoot 79. Mm-hmm. With my tail between my legs, we have lunch, and then go to Lookout Mountain mm-hmm. and probably hit it a shade worse and shoot 68. <laughs> so it's that hard. Now, I haven't played it in five years, and I understand that, that the greens have gotten a l- more receptive. But and I, that's great because, in my opinion, Parkland golf, the honors is as good as it gets anywhere in the world. I, it, it just got to a point where I would have to play it from sixty seven hundred, mm-hmm. so that I could hit shots that would stay on the green. And that's not why I was there. I was there as a professional playing, you know, from the from the professional tees. Mm-hmm. 
And I was just like, well, I guess I'm not good enough. <laughs> Golf has that way about it sometimes. So I guess I've, I've heard Bermuda greens will get softer with time, right? When yes, they will. There. And it's interesting because then, like then, like so like the Champions Bermuda or the the Mini Verde, my understanding is that they're they're a blend of a, a couple of different Bermuda grasses, and then over like a ten at the ten year mark, the twelve year mark, they begin to segregate, and you'll start to see splotches of one and splotches of another. They don't stay like as in like Champions. Mm-hmm. It's the the different variations begin to segregate, and then you got you can see, and then they have to like redo it. Maybe that's what I'm seeing at Governor's Club. It's I think it's it's, it's about the time. Mm-hmm. And Hillwood's not too far behind. Brentwood Country Club's not too far behind. Where that first year, man, you had to absolutely hit a shot mm-hmm. to have your ball stop what I call the beanbag. It hits and bounces and then kind of stops. You weren't mm-hmm. spinning anything back the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. But that beanbag shot where it would hit and stop, all, it had to be hit perfectly or solidly. Coming out of the rough, you had to know what how you were going to dink it in there. You're going to bounce it in there somehow mm-hmm. because there's no way that you were stopping it. But now they get a little more thatch. And now like the cool thing about Bermuda grass is it doesn't leave much in the way of ball marks compared mm-hmm. to bent greens. Right. So even now, and this is probably at the 10-year mark. Oh, well, it is the 10-year mark because Hillwood redid it uh, after the flood mm-hmm. in 2010. So I think we did it in 2011. So we're, we're going into the 10th year. Now, like, it hardly marks. But because the thatch is so big, it it stops pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It gives you the beanbag. And you can spin balls back now on everything. But there was a time, and you'd be looking for the smear not a mark. <laughs> you just be trying to identify where it hit because it was like freshly squeezed into the dirt. Right. But now it's now it's receptive. And in my opinion, in June, July, August, September, I grew up on bent and a really great bent is really great bent, period, mm-hmm. end of sentence. But in my opinion, I would tell you I'd put off of the, the Bermuda grasses today mm-hmm. way more than I would like to put off the bent. It's yeah. so perfect. I've never so, played golf up north, and it looks... It's different because it, like the bent that's down here, the grass, the blades of grass aren't as compact and squished together mm-hmm. as they are in the northeast. And you play up in Michigan, and oh, man, the greens in Michigan and Chicago, they're so perfect. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I guess, I think about it, in the north, in, in the mid, north and the northeast and the midwest, in about oh, maybe July-ish in August, there's that place where they're really firm and fast, mm-hmm. and they don't leave much of a ball mark either. They're pretty majestic, too. I mean, Chicago Golf Club was unbelievable. So was on Wednesday and Medina. I mean, they were just perfect. Mm-hmm. That's just like, that's 26 years ago that I was in Chicago, so it's hard for me to remember. <laughs> but I did go home to over the 4th of July last year and played a country club that we played high school golf on. And they were perfect. And I was yeah. like, my, my boys were like, this is unbelievable. Because <laughs> we've never played really good bent in the southeast. Yeah. It's just has to, it's so hot. Everything's so hot. just so different. I was surprised to see uh, bent greens in Alabama at uh, Robert Trent Jones. Yeah. I don't know how much longer they got to be looking at renovating that. But the problem is the severity of the slopes, man. Mm-hmm. That, that that's a mat like because the one I worked at at Oxmoor Valley and I've played the one in Huntsville, I've played the one in Auburn, played the one in Aniston and Dothan, the originals, the first five, mm-hmm. I played them all. Gadsden, Robert Trent Jones makes very challenging green complexes. Well, I mean, 
and they're challenging for anybody at 10 on the stint meter bent. Mm. You put a new Bermuda grass, and it'll probably to be bent, you know, to be a good surface without being too velcroy. You probably want them rolling 11 and a half or 12. My God, the people that go out there and play, they'd shoot a million. Right. They couldn't finish holes depending on the pin placements. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that's what they're staring at. But every year, the turf grass for, you know, the bent grasses get more heat resistant and the, the summer grasses get more winter resistant. Mm-hmm. And I think you're starting to see more zoysia. Uh, there's even a new strain of zoysia greens, which I haven't putted on yet, but I can't wait to, where zoysia comes back about three weeks earlier, four weeks earlier than Bermuda grass does. And it stays green longer mm-hmm. than Bermuda does. So you probably get five to six more weeks of that perfect condition green-wise, mm-hmm. the color green, not the, the surface, the putting surface, because it's it's it comes out of dormancy quicker and stays cold-tolerant longer. So is soja new to greens, or yes. have they always... No, only recently, and I have not yet played one, but I know a friend of mine, Bryant Parker, who said that uh, that, there, that he knows of one. He said it was amazing. I just haven't, I don't, I haven't played it yet, but I'm very much looking forward to trying it because yeah. anything that is that can take away the grain mm-hmm. that you get off Bermuda, and there's not much on like really well kept Bermuda greens, mm-hmm. but still about four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. There, you start to fill that ball, get pulled on. That's the only thing that Bent doesn't have as much grain pull right. on the ball versus Bermuda grass. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty big uh, it's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. So soccer was a big deal when you were growing up. Who's your, who's your favorite soccer team and favorite soccer player of all time? I say Maradona, Diego Maradona, and uh, me and my dad both root for uh, Pumas. Oh, nice. They're not from Guadalajara. From Guadalajara is uh, Chivas, uh-huh. but uh, Pumas is from Mexico City. Oh, okay, that's been our favorite team. What was it about Maradona that you that that drew you to him so much? Because he was that's the very first player that I recognized, even before Pele. Because I was because of the the I was the first World Cup I ever watched on TV was when Maradona just dominated, mm-hmm. and, and then I did some research on you know the history of it. And it was Pele. Obviously, mm-hmm. where did where did what was Maradona's key for you? Gosh, the touch of the ball, the way he dribbled. Yeah, yeah, he was a magician. Oh yeah, it, it was fun to watch him play. I like I said, I didn't. He obviously just passed away not long ago, mm-hmm. and you know it's just sad because a, a lot of his life was, I shouldn't say a lot of his life, but the last couple of years of his life were just kind of drowned in excess, mm-hmm. and ended up costing him his life, but. To see the highlights of him in his prime, because I had only—I would even say when he won the Olympics, he was probably at the the back end mm-hmm. of the top of the world. I mean, he right. was still of the best. But to see the what he did when he was like really young, and oh my goodness, yeah. Because I have always thought that the most footwork skill that I have ever seen is Ronaldinho. Mm-hmm. But I could he was see a great player too. Yeah, but holy smokes, man! Diego Maradona was a legend. Yeah, so good, such a. I mean, he looked like he was so short, but it looked like his thighs were 40 inches thick, <laughs> like he was a football player. Unbelievable. Uh, remember the hand of God? <laughs> the hand of God. I think that's what they call yeah, it. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Gosh, that would never pass now. <laughs> <laughs> Times they have changed. Oh, yeah. They'd be reviewing that oh, yeah. big time. Have you, I know traveling's a big deal for you and your family. That's a great escape for you. What are some of the great places you've traveled around the world that, that 
really was like either a sh- shockingly awesome or a place that you just love to go see? Um, we have loved Cancun. Yeah. We have been to Cancun a few times. And I think it's the um, the vacation and the culture uh-huh. that kind of attracts us there. Yeah. Because um, we like visiting our hometown, but it doesn't feel like we're on vacation. Yeah. Has a little bit of work to it. Yeah, always busy. Yeah. People pulling you different directions, and you kind of come back a little more stressed than you left. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. But uh, we really like Cancun because there's so much to do. Oh, yeah. And we can normally stay somewhere where there's a lot to do for the kids. And I can get away in the morning, yeah. play around, and come right back. What were, what were your favorite courses in Cancun? Uh, Riviera Maya oh, and yeah. uh, Mayacoba. Riviera Maya. What was it? Of the two, you, you like Mayacoba better than Riviera Maya? Because mm-hmm. yeah. the last time I was there, it was just about ready mm-hmm. to, be, to be open. It was the last time I was in Cancun. And it was like something they were trying to attract us to go see, possible timeshare, or you know, to to get involved in it. But it, and it was it wasn't ready yet, so I have not been. But I heard it was it was on paper. It was supposed to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to play it uh, twi- both of them twice last year. I've become pretty good friends with the uh, caddy that had the little incident with uh, oh Matt Kuchar. Matt Kuchar. Yeah. Is there anything that you can share about that? Um, well, uh, last time I saw him, I asked, I asked him how it ended if, uh, you know, he was happy with the outcome and he was not really. So it was the last tournament, uh, they played in Mexico city. Uh, what is it? The W it's the WGC. Yeah. Chipotle. Um, I think this year they played it in Yeah, concession because of the, just due to COVID. So the previous year, Matt Kuchar, after it got all the attention, he called him and wanted him to meet him at the WGCG. Uh, and he said it was a great experience because he got to go in the locker room uh-huh. and see a bunch of cool guys and stuff. So he thought that he was going there because Matt Kuchar was going to make it right. Well, making it right for Matt Kuchar was having breakfast with him and just saying, I'm sorry for all the bad press all this guy. Wow. And went home empty, empty-handed. Try to write him a check for five grand, and he refused it. He wow. said, "No, thank you." Which, you know, it could have changed this guy's life. Yeah. You know. Opportunity missed. Yeah. Quadruple bogey, two balls out of bounds is what we'll call that. <laughs> it's a uh, you know because it's interesting. Yeah, I see. I'm only able to see it because I've been on the tour, not as a tour player, but I've coached tour players. All right. So the agreement that they have beforehand, mm-hmm. it's not the same agreement that he has with his tour caddy, right? So there's, it was, hey, what, which, what's your, your uh, charge for the week? And then he ends up paying him more than he would have gotten mm-hmm. so like Kuchar's like what are you talking about I just made he just made way more money than he ever would have made mm-hmm. if I hadn't had him on my bag right and then it's then uh, then it doesn't look right because he wins I'm absolutely positive the caddy played a role in the victory right and he doesn't get treated like the rest of the caddies right so there's already sc- you know, this built-in label of caddy as a second-class 
servant to golf, right. which is kind of sad to begin with. But then he feels like a second-class citizen of the second-class citizens mm-hmm. because uh, you're using like what I would have made mm-hmm. against me. Right. Dirty I, pool. Yeah, I had a hard time kind of thinking that one through because he did pay him, you know, and like you said, more than what the agreement was. They yeah. had an agreement. Yeah. But then the press got involved and, you know, he should have paid him this and, you know, yeah. he got paid. He got you know? paid. But it's it's so weird. Money does things to people, man. Mm-hmm. Money does things to people. And, you know, Cooch is, you know, Cooch is obviously great player mm-hmm. okay but you know Mickelson's a trash talker mm-hmm. big time trash talker there's only one person that Mickelson doesn't talk trash to it's Matt Kuchar hmm. Tiger Woods is the Tiger Woods has all of the trump cards uh-huh. he has all the aces uh-huh. so but before he throws out 14 to nothing mm-hmm. on Kuchar Kuchar's got a sharp razor tongue, and he is uber competitive. And what most people don't know, he's getting older now, but I mean, five years ago, only behind Gary Woodland and DJ, Kuchar's the third best athlete on the tour. Hmm. Unbelievable tennis player and a really, really good basketball player and the king of ping pong. Hmm. When it goes like the Ryder Cups, mm-hmm. like Mickelson and, and Tiger both were very proud of their mm-hmm. ping pong skills. Hmm. Kuch, like ate them for lunch. He does not look like an athlete. He doesn't look like an athlete at all, but apparently he is a super tennis player. Huh. I would have never guessed that. Have you ever tried tennis? I've played it. Yeah. You know, my favorite player was, uh, I would say my first favorite player was Bjorn Borg, then Yvonne Lendl, but then I became a full-blown Andre Agassi fan, the long-haired rebel Andre Agassi. And then I stopped playing. I, had, I made a decision. Baseball was number one. Basketball is number two. Mm-hmm. Tear my rotator cuff. And I see, like, literally, I am come back and find out that my left, my rotator cuff is torn, and I see my neighbor hitting plastic balls around his backyard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you doing? Because I'm playing golf. And, play, and he's like, I'm playing the Masters. Mm-hmm. Here, watch. I'm going to hit it from this stump to the, the wash line pole. Mm-hmm. And and if he gets it within the uh, three, you know, the, the ball within three feet of the, the wash line pole, it's in the hole. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm 500. I got three holes to play. And I'm like, <laughs> So just I got nothing else to do, so I'm left-handed, as you know. Mm-hmm. But I played golf for the first a little over a year, right-handed, because mm-hmm. I was told that they don't play golf left-handed. Mm-hmm. So I was terrible. And the first one, like I'm right there with you. I don't like playing, being terrible at anything. Mm-hmm. And literally, when, when when my grandfather passed away, we found a set of golf clubs in the back of his garage, and they were left-handed. Mm-hmm. And that's when I quit. I mean, I instantly, as soon as I, they were rotted leather, nineteen like. 37 Wilson staffs like they they had fake grooves in them uh-huh blades uh-huh like rusted up shafts three five seven nine a putter and like a driver two wood three wood four wood five wood I don't know why who anybody would need all those woods but I, I was like and I I went from shooting like 127 I think my first round of golf left hand I shot 98 cool and I've been I've been hooked ever since, but it's so it's so uh, that's pretty funny to think about it like that. But yeah, I mean, so it's, fake grooves they drill them on or like it they look like they were just like they looked like they were etched on. Mm-hmm. They were so thin, mm-hmm. and it certainly wasn't like my grandfather was very good because there was no sweet spot mark anyway. <laughs> right, it was just like they've been they've been clanked around the whole face a lot, but there was no like even the top. It just looked like there was 
like just barely a little, like it was barely etched in with like almost like a chisel or something. Mm-hmm. Very, really, really thin. I've always thought it's pretty cool. Uh, I always hear people talking about playing golf with their, you know, grandparents and all this. And like I was telling you earlier, no one, I've never talked to anyone from my hometown about golf. Uh-huh. No one. <laughs> and um, one of the first times I uh, I played at Mayakoba, one of the guys, um, I guess they don't see a lot of Hispanics there. I uh-huh. don't know. He's like, uh, he was uh, one of the guys on, on the crew doing cleanup or something. I can't remember what they were doing. He's like, you're here to chase the little white ball too? I'm like, yeah, I'm here to do that too. <laughs> That's awesome. When, you know, any favorite bands, any favorite music growing up, things you like to listen to? I was into hip-hop. Yeah? Who's your favorite? Um, I was a big uh, like Jay-Z fan. Oh, Jay-Z. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Lil Wayne. Really? Yeah. Right on. First little Wayne reference here on On the Verge. <laughs> I've had a bunch of Jay-Z. Like, I've, Jay-Z, it's interesting because I'm more of a West Coast guy. I was a, I grew up more Dre, Snoop, Tupac. Mm-hmm. And there was, like, obviously that whole faction was Puffy and uh, Big Poppy and and that and that whole group of Jay-Z, the New Yorkers, right? Mm-hmm. I never really got into Jay-Z, but I've been around a lot of people that love Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. What is it about Jay-Z that attracts you so much? Uh, lately it has been his business mind, uh, like how he has transformed into, you know, a rapper to now like this mogul. Big, right. Yeah. Does he have a book? Did he, did he, did he write a book or where did you, where did you get most of your information off of Jay-Z? Just in articles? Or? Just reading, yeah, reading. articles basically, yeah. Because yeah. I'd love to read his book. Mm-hmm. He's got a very fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating story. And... Uh, hard knocks to the top. Oh yeah, hard knocks to the top, and he's really adamant about taking care of people and giving people shots. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love Super that. Super cool. Super cool. Well, final question: You get a chance to play one round of golf. You get a chance to take three people with you, whether they're alive or not. Why are you going to play? And who are your three partners? Gosh. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned uh, Cypress Point, and I've been looking at that course. And uh, uh, one person be my grandfather, even though he would know how to, uh-huh. you know, hold the golf club. I'll fix that. <laughs> um, I'd say um, Tiger would be pretty cool. Uh-huh. Uh, probably like Jack Nicklaus or something. Yeah. It'd be really cool, like I always tell people, it'd be really cool to have Tiger and Jack or Tiger and Hogan. Those are the big three that you hear a lot. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that would be really important to have would be like a Trevino, a Mickelson, or a Palmer. Because you need to have somebody chirping (laughs) because they're all, those three are all introverts. Mm -hmm. So get Jack and Tiger together. And you and your grandfather, and you'd have a hard time getting a word out. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, this is a dream content. But you're like, one of the things that made Ben Hogan talk was Arnold Palmer. Mm-hmm. He loved, like, Arnie could just get him talking. Mm-hmm. Arnie can get Tiger talking. Arnie certainly got Jack talking. Mm-hmm. Trevino, the same, but Trevino was more of an antagonist. Palmer was more of like, 
he was the guy's guy. Everybody wanted to be like Arnold Palmer. Mm -hmm. And by like Mickelson, he makes people talk. You know, whether you like it or not, I mean, he just, he's a conversationalist. He's provocative in his ways, but now his sense of humor is so amazing. And he, he can get away with stuff when he talks to Tiger that nobody else could get away with. And it's so funny, but like, that would be so great. So Grandpa, Tiger, Jack, you, Cypress Point. Yeah. That's a great cocktail right there. That's the best of the best. I would have a question for uh, Palmer, though. What's that? What the heck was he thinking on number 17 at Governor's? <laughs> Buddy, uh, that is, that's up there for me in the worst holes, especially coming down the home stretch. That's a round killer hole yeah, right no there. Doubt. We were just talking about that because it just round killed you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's finish up with this, uh, this amazing story of possibly the greatest round of golf you've ever played until Arnie's bad idea <laughs> showed up. Give us the scoop on that. So keep in mind, I've been playing for a little over three years. Mm -hmm. But I've put a lot of work into my game, as you know. Yeah. And um, I'm coming after 16, I'm one under, and get to 17, which not my favorite hole. Yeah. It was playing, I think, like 195 uh, par three. Yeah. And I leave the face open, leave it right. I'm on the right side of the bunker and chip it pretty well. I'm like 15 uh, with an uphill putt and three putt. I was literally shaking. I was already celebrating in my mind on 18 that I had shot par. Expectations. I was like, I'll be okay with a bogey here and I'll par the next hole and yep. I'll be good. Well, to, to paint the picture, from the back tees, it's like 251 mm -hmm. from the back. It's There's a little creek that runs right along the left edge of the green, the whole length of the green. Right. But what's, what's really frustrating as you're playing it is that there's really no place to bail out. Because if you miss the green right, you're dead. Right. There, because the green is so heavily sloped toward the water. So now you're like, how many people have... like? If I'm playing it, I'm playing it from 251. And it's mm -hmm. probably downhill 20 yards. Right. So I'm 231. I got three iron. Mm -hmm. And I have to hit it into 16-yard wide. Right. It's this narrow. It's green. so narrow. And if I, I have the choice between taking a penalty and chipping uphill for par mm -hmm. or hitting it over to the right and knowing that I might be then chipping for bogey. Right. After I chip it across the green into the water and hit a pretty good chip to do that. Right. And when they changed it to Bermuda grass, that amped up the level of difficulty on that hole significantly because it's so downhill. Mm -hmm. So, like, I've played that much like you. I, mean, I get off that 16th hole, which is that par five, right? Is, it the, is it 16 the par five? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've come in with that green with like a seven iron. I make eagle and I'm like five under <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to tear this place apart. I never been, that's the first time I played it. And I get up there, I'm like, 251. I was like, I get this. I'm like, 30, 21 down, so it's 230. So I hit three iron into that bunker. Oh my God. It's a tough bunker. There's five. Thanks for coming out. And I just like you. <laughs> yeah. How many people walk off that green with their heads sizzling hot? Oh, yeah. Every day. <laughs> and an 18 it's a good finishing goal. 18 is mm -hmm. a good finish goal, but 17. Arnie, what were you thinking? Yeah. Thanks for all that you did for the game, but. 
<laughs> we need an eraser on this one. <laughs> well, Jose, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story and uh, and being a part of my life. Uh, you, you and your family are so much fun and great, great to be around. How can my listeners get in touch with you to possibly take a look at their outdoor space to amplify it either in an entertainment way or in golf? Best way would be through our website. Uh, our information is on there, which is greenscenetn.com. Greenscenetn.com. Yes. Well, I can't thank you enough, buddy. Thank, thank you so you. much. And we're going to put the buff and shine kit on that game, and we're going to strangle 17 this yes, year. Have a good one, buddy. Thank you. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.